If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we'll be for the next few minutes. As we turn now to God's Word, let's turn to Him in prayer, asking for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, May your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you've been doing, also have your Trinity hymnal available uh, if needed to look at the Apostles' Creed, found on page 845. Well, uh, last week, uh, the sermon began uh, with these words, and they are worth repeating. Few things are more precious to Christ and yet more neglected by his people than the church and what the Bible has to say about it. The church is his body and bride. He shed his blood for her salvation. Yet churches and Christians pay scant attention to what the church is and why it matters. That was written by Mark Johnston in his book, Our Creed for Every Culture and for Every Generation. Well, for the next 30 minutes or so, we're not going to overlook, but rather we're going to continue to pay close attention to what the scriptures say about the church as we move from last week's focus on the Holy Catholic Church to today's focus on the communion of saints. Now, creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed is one of those universal ecumenical creed, not written by the apostles, but certainly incorporating their primary teaching that was uh, developed from the third to the the second to the uh, sixth or seventh centuries. Uh, Creeds, of course, as we've been saying, are subordinate to and under the authority of the Bible. And yet, they are vitally important because they help our limited, finite minds to organize and summarize the teachings of Scripture. Back in my junior high and high school days, cliff notes were gold. I mean, if you got your hands on cliff notes, you could pass the class. And truth be told, there were some large books that I did not read, to my shame. But I read the Cliff Notes. They were helpful. You know, the Apostles' Creed is kind of like Cliff Notes for a a huge novel, a huge work. But yet, it should just whet our appetite to go deep and broad in Scripture. The Apostles' Creed summarizes the faith. On the next page, you've got the Nicene Creed. It it defends the faith primarily. It summarizes, but it doesn't exhaust it. I believe, remember, doesn't mean faith in faith. Rather, I believe means faith in the faith. The faith, as we read in Jude, that was once delivered for all the saints. Confessing our faith, declaring what we believe, as we've been saying, it promotes personal humility. It serves to commend the faith and defend the faith, to send the faith out, but also to protect the faith from attack. And as we join our hearts and voices together in confessing our faith, it serves to promote church unity. It serves to strengthen our faith, which is at times weak and frail. 
My friends, we need to be reminded of what we know, what we believe. There are, of course, many things, many things that we do not know. However, there are some things that we know for sure, that we know without a doubt. And those things, like what we see in the Apostles' Creed, they both anchor and power our lives so that we are both, where appropriate, conservative, holding on to the truth, but also where appropriate, progressive, uh, proclaiming that truth, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Thus far in our series, we have said, I believe three times. And you've noticed it's Trinitarian. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We see the creating work of the Father, the rescue work of the Son, and the recreating work of the Holy Spirit. We see in this third part, this move from the accomplished work of Jesus Christ to the application of that work by the Holy Spirit. The third section of the Apostles' Creed is, for all intents and purposes, a job description of the Holy Spirit. The quiet but powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Because you see, after we state, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we see the church, the new community. We see forgiveness that brings about that new relationship. We see the resurrection, which brings about a new existence. We see everlasting life, which brings about a new destiny. You see in this section the community of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the hope of the Spirit. And as I mentioned last week, the table of contents shows you that the Trinity hymnal is laid out like the Westminster Confession of Faith, like the Apostles' Creed. And so right after the section on the Holy Spirit, you see the church. And then if you continue, you will see the communion of saints. Well, today we continue our focus on the church being a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think it's important before we move on to just see again that in unfolding the work of the Holy Spirit and applying the work of Jesus Christ, the creed doesn't begin with the individual, but rather with the community. The Apostles' Creed confesses what it means to believe in the church before it goes on to speak of individual conversion and Christian experience. We all know that our personal identity is bound up in many ways in, by the family into which we are born. Well, your identity as a Christian is bound up in many ways into the family in which you are reborn. Who we are as Christians can never be separated from what it means to belong to the church. Last Sunday, the Holy Catholic Church the church is holy. It's been set apart by God. And that should encourage us. The church is also Catholic. It's universal. It's not all about us. It should humble us. Now I want to speak briefly on just three views of what it means when we hear this expression, the communion of saints. One historical understanding is this. The real union in Christ of the church militant here on earth with the church triumphant in heaven. In other words, the church on earth and the church in heaven are one and the same. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 12 where it speaks of the church going on to that triumphant glory. 
and our relationship with them. Another historical understanding is communion in holy things, word, sacrament, worship, prayer. And to make the true but distinct point that in the church, there is a real sharing in the life of God. And a third historical understanding, which will be the bulk of our focus, is this, an explanation of what the church is, Christians in fellowship with one another. And that's in particular how the Heidelberg Catechism defines the communion of saints. And here we see the church as an organization with a structure, an institution. The church is the holy Catholic church, but also as an organism, a living thing, the communion of saints. Now first, a word about saints. Saints are not a special class of Christians. If you read those letters that Aaron's got, what's his name? Reading? Galatians, Ephesians, what's his name? Casey? Yeah, Casey's going to read about saints, to the saints, to the saints. It's to Christians. Saint is another word for believer. And a saint is holy by virtue of their participation, their communion in Christ. Now, a word about communion. The church is those is that society of those united to Christ. In last week's Something to Think About quote by Ed Clowney were these words, and it ended like this. The church is the institution of Christ and the Spirit formed by His power and governed by His Word. A few years ago, we were all in 1 John, and in 1 John 1.3, we read this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In just a few minutes, we're going to confess together what we believe by using chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you will notice that that chapter stresses the primacy of the union and communion of a Christian first and foremost, with Christ, by faith, before it speaks of the solidarity we have with one another in love. So in other words, the communion of saints has to do with our objective bond in Christ, by His Spirit, and the subjective expression of that bond in the community of the church. Now, many texts could be used to support the communion of saints uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Acts chapter 2. But I thought it would be best for us to stay in Ephesians. Last Sunday was Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, when we looked at the Holy Catholic Church. And today, we're going to be, for the next few minutes, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Join with me as I read that passage. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all 
and in all. Well, according to our text, what is already in existence by the work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the unity of the Spirit. We're going to unpack what this passage says about this union and communion. And then in particular, what it says about the maintenance of this union and communion. To do that, we're going to first recognize the call to maintain union and communion. Secondly, to explore the doctrine of union and communion. Thirdly, to examine the means of maintenance. And finally, we're going to consider the motivation to maintain that union and communion. First, the call to maintain union and communion. You see that in verses 1 and 3. Uh, Thus far in Ephesians, Paul has taught his readers and he has prayed for them. Beginning in verse or chapter 4, therefore, marks the transition from doctrinal instruction to practical exhortation. In other words, in view of everything I've said already in chapters 1 through 3, now do this. He leads off with walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what does that mean? What is the calling to which you have been called? Well, Paul has unveiled the calling in chapters 1 through 3. It's a call to believe, a call to faith, a call to new life in Christ. And to walk is that biblical picture of conducting yourself. In other words, live in a manner that aligns up with that calling. Now, when Paul says worthy, he is not suggesting any way that we merit somehow the grace of God. If anything, the first three chapters of Ephesians have driven home the point that salvation is absolutely, completely, utterly gracious. No one is worthy of the calling in the sense that they are worthy to be called. Rather, it is an adverb of manner. And so worthy means appropriate or fitting. In other words, the idea here is our manner of life balances the scales, as it were. Thus, to live a life worthy of the calling is to live a true balanced life between who you are declared to be and how you live. In other words, be or become who you are. Present a manner of life that exhibits this new reality. Now, the primary way you walk worthy is that you maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, you guard, preserve, protect, defend, keep that union and communion. Notice that it is not just maintain, but rather be eager to maintain. Some translations say make every effort. It's literally a call for continuous, diligent activity. It's urgent. Take the initiative. Do it now. Don't wait and see. So before we move on, whenever we see a word, uh, be eager, right? Eager to maintain. Just ask yourself right now, what am I eager to do? Am I eager for this service to end and so I can get out the door and get gone? Is that what I'm eager to do? Am I eager tomorrow morning to to work my way through all my investments to see how they're doing? Am I eager to show my friend that I'm right and they're wrong? 
What are you eager to do? Here is a call to be eager to maintain the unity. Okay, it's pretty clear that the central exhortation in these first verses of chapter 4 is the command to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the the communion in the Spirit. No ambiguity here. So what exactly is this unity and community that we are called to maintain? Well, look with me in verses 4 through 6. The biblical doctrine of union and communion. Remember the theme of Ephesians, we see it in chapter 1, verse 10, is to unite all things in Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, you see the movement from death to life, from alienation to reconciliation. You see the the restoration of unity with God and the creation with the unity with one another, especially with Jew and Gentile. The foundation of our unity can be seen in verses 4 through 6 because here in Ephesians is a confession of faith because Paul is, as it were, addressing a confessional church. Unity is only through faith, what we believe. And you'll notice in a casual reading the repetition of the word one, seven times in three verses, one body, one spirit, one hope, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. But a more careful reading, you will observe that three of the seven allude to the three persons of the Trinity. And while the remaining four allude to aspects of our salvation and Christian experience in relation to the three persons. There's one body because there's one spirit. There's one hope, one faith, one baptism because there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one Christian family embracing us all, of all, over all, in all, because there's one God the Father. Or put it in the reverse order. First, the one Father creates the one family. Secondly, the one Lord Jesus Christ brings about the one faith, hope, and baptism. And third, the one Spirit creates one body. There can be only one Christian family that Catholic church, only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, and only one Christian body. Why? Because there's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. And I am so thankful for what God has done and is doing here at Grace and Peace in really bringing together all kinds of people, joining hearts and lives together where we both give to one another and receive from one another. Now, wait a minute. You may be thinking right now, what's the sense of urging the maintenance of something that's indestructible, something that God himself created, this unity of the Spirit, and therefore, presumably, that which God alone is responsible to preserve. What's going on with this call to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Well, the answer would seem to be that to maintain the unity of the Spirit must mean to maintain it visibly. In other words, to maintain unity is to demonstrate unity in actual concrete relationships with real people in the church. Now, an analogy of a human family may be helpful. 
One family, a marriage and parenthood have united a husband and a wife and children. They've said, I do. They've left the hospital with the new child. But relationships grow cold and strained. There is unity, but it needs to be demonstrated. Okay, that makes sense. But how? How do we go about maintaining unity? Paul doesn't leave us hanging. It's right before us in the text. And so now let's consider the means of maintenance. The means of maintaining this union and this communion of saints. Verse 2 gives us the how. The means of maintaining union and communion. Now, if you were writing this letter, what would you say about how to maintain unity in the church? Some of you are out in the corporate world. Right. And what do you have? You have a vision, a marketing strategy. There's authority. You're the boss. So there's a cor- there's a corporate sense of maintaining unity. And there's also that way through intimidation, brute force. Right. We will be united. Right. With a threat. But look at verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's not a marketing strategy. It's not brute force or intimidation. It's not clever um, wiring diagrams. No, it's humility. We all... No, it's hard to define humility, but you know it when you see it, don't you? Here's a couple of definitions that are helpful to me. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. I often think of humility in terms of quickness. We are quick to think how we can serve others rather than ourselves. And we are quick to recognize our own sin rather than someone else's. We are quick to confess and repent. Look at the next word, gentleness, meekness, strength under control, power under control. It's a person who has a teachable attitude. It's the quality of having a strong personality who is nevertheless a master of himself and a servant of others. Patience. It's humility, gentleness, patience, or long-suffering. It's long-suffering and patience toward people who have weaknesses and shortcomings. Demonstrating humility and gentleness toward someone for a really, 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 really long time. I remember years ago at our home church in Wilmington, Delaware, the pastor said, do you want to know where the Holy Spirit is at work? Don't go looking for people rolling around barking like dogs. Look for patience. Have you ever thought about that? Patience, of course, it's a fruit of the Spirit. 
Bearing with one another in love, enduring, doing without, holding back, restraining. It's a mutual tolerance without which no people could live together in peace. If you got the email on Friday and read it, you may have heard this quote. Unity is not the uniting of ideas, but rather the uniting of hearts, made possible only by the humbling of hearts. So true. Unity is made visible by humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. So we've seen Paul calling the church to walk worthy of its calling. And this is done, first of all, through the maintenance of its unity. And the tools that we have seen are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. So is this routine maintenance? Or is it the check engine light that comes on on the dashboard? Or is it smoke that comes out from under the hood? Well, it's both. Because it's both planned and unplanned maintenance that are needed to prevent as well as to repair problems. We're talking about the communion of saints, the unity, the communion, the union. So what's in your toolbox right now? Power. Control, a desire to be right? Or is there humility, gentleness, patience, long suffering? So that's the how. But let's go now to the, the motivation. What is the motivation to make communion work? Are we to settle for mere pragmatism? Okay, we've been shown a bit what to do, but now why are we to do it? That's the question we need to be able to answer. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, so that the church can display the manifold wisdom of God. And that manifold wisdom looks like a unity, a union and communion of all kinds of people. Now, this motivation is certainly true, but is there another? Is there a deeper motivation, a stronger motivation at the level of the heart? Let's consider for a moment the Apostle Paul, the author. He describes himself what? As a prisoner for or of Jesus. Well, what has Jesus done for Paul? Jesus is, first of all, humble. He came from heaven to earth. He is gentle with Paul. He used his power not to crush Paul, but to lift him up, to redeem him, to restore him. Jesus, if anything, is patient with Paul. He bears with Paul in love. Paul experienced personally in Jesus himself, and therefore he was able to declare this truth. So how about you? Before you are humble and gentle and patient, and loving with others, have you experienced, do you know the humility, the gentleness, the patience, and the love of Jesus? We've already discussed how Paul grounded this first exhortation in the doctrine of the Trinity. Think with me for a moment. For a time, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was torn apart so that you and I 
would not be torn apart and crushed by God's wrath, but rather so that for all time we would be reconciled, we would be reunited to God. For a time, the perfect union and communion of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was ripped apart so that you and I could be reunited to God and united to one another in a family as brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. My friends, when you are struggling, as we all struggle, to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving, remember the Trinity was ripped apart for a time so that you and I would not be ripped apart, but rather reconciled. You see, doctrine, true, robust, biblical doctrine is absolutely essential to living the Christian life. My friends, all theology is practical theology. Did you hear that? All theology is practical theology. It makes a difference. Well, we need to wrap up. We've seen that the church, you, because it's plural, y'all, The church is called to walk worthy of its calling, which according to this passage is first and foremost through the maintenance of its union, its communion. That is through its visible demonstration. We've seen that the tools for the maintenance of the unity of the Spirit, this communion of saints, are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. These tools are various facets of the one fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, my friends, the communion of saints is formed and fueled by the Holy Spirit. So before we conclude, let's ask ourselves a few questions. What happens when you take a look at your life and realize that you have not maintained but rather disrupted the communion of saints, either by deliberate action or inaction, neglect? When you recognize that you have not maintained but rather denied the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? What happens when the eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to maintain the communion of saints has faded and you have been overwhelmed by any number of other things which compete for your attention and effort. What happens when it's the absence rather than the presence of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love that characterizes your walk and we all are recognized by our walk, aren't we? Is there any hope for us? Are there any resources for humility, gentleness, patience? Yes, there is hope and yes, there are resources. But you know what? You can't start with what you must do. We heard that in Sinclair Ferguson's lesson this morning. It's not what you must do. You see, unity among people doesn't start with you. The communion of saints doesn't start with you. Today is not the time for a firm resolution of what you need to do. Rather, today is a clear time for a clear recognition 
of what God has already done for you in Christ. That's the order, the logic of the gospel. You need to come to Jesus and look upon his humble, gentle, patient work of living and dying love on your behalf. That's what will get you and me through this day. That's what will get you and me through this life. That's what Paul did in his doxological response to the work of Christ. You see it at the end of chapter 3. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, my friends, because Christians belong to Christ, Christians belong to one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, through His Word and by His Spirit, God is calling us today to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, be eager to maintain this union and communion that God has created in the, through the person and work of His Son and through the application of that work by the Holy Spirit. Because my friends, what God has created is a glorious, magnificent, stunning, breathtakingly beautiful communion of saints. We are called to maintain it, that is to demonstrate it through our humility, through our gentleness, through our patience, through our bearing with one another in love. Doing this, walking like this, living like this, demonstrating the reality of Christ in you, my friends, brings much glory to God and does much good for His people. His church, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Father, we pray and ask now that our hearts would be encouraged, that our hearts would be knit together in love, that we would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of your mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not only calling us to yourself, but calling us into this blessed communion of saints. Oh, Father, would you enable us to be eager and equip us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which is the atmosphere of this communion of saints. Be pleased, Father, to protect us and to provide all that we need. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.